Good morning. It's Thursday, the 11th of January, and this is Govind Raj Athiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital, experiencing its best of winter, which is summer for most. Our top stories and themes for the day: the 10th vibrant Gujarat summit sees major manufacturing announcements. Japanese markets hit a 34-year high, even as Indian markets recover. Information technology hirings in the United States hit a speed breaker. Will India follow? Global air traffic is now at 99.1% of pre-pandemic peaks. And Boeing's CEO says they made a mistake. This is a core report with Govindraj Athiraj. Indian markets recover. Indian investors are presently watching out for the third quarter and inflation numbers as fresh trends or triggers to look for. The stock market seesawed once again on Wednesday with the BSE Sensex finally closing 272 points higher at 71656 after recovering from the day low of 71111. The NSE Nifty 50 climbed 74 points finally to end at 21619. If you've been following these figures, you know that the Sensex has gone already above seventy-two thousand and then come back, and the Nifty has gone above twenty-two thousand and now come back. Elsewhere, Japanese stocks powered ahead towards a fresh three-decade high, with the Topics Index touching a thirty-four-year peak thanks to a weaker yen, which supported exporter stocks. The Nikkei two twenty-five index jumped over two percent after its benchmark hit its highest since nineteen ninety. On Tuesday, Bloomberg reported, Japan's performance was not reflective or reflected upon markets elsewhere, with stocks on Wall Street and the rest of Asia steady to weak on the heels of some heavy tech stock selling last week. Bloomberg quoted J.P. Morgan chief Japan equity strategist saying that with the market's expectation of an early Fed rate cut receding after the start of the new year, Japanese stocks remained firm on the back of expectations that the yen's depreciation against the dollar will support corporate earnings. The reason we are talking about Japan also is to illustrate how long a cycle could be in a market, particularly in this case, an equity market. And as you saw, it was a 34-year turnaround. Back home, the rupee ended higher for a sixth consecutive session on likely foreign inflows, settling at. 83 rupees 3 paise against the US dollar its highest closing since December 15th against its close of 83 rupees 11 paise in the previous session earlier in the day it hit a high of 82 rupees and 98 paise the jump on wednesday was due to dollar selling by a large uk based bank traders told reuters with one hdfc securities analyst adding that dollar inflows have kept the rupee the top performer amongst asian currencies Vibrant Gujarat sees major manufacturing promises. Prime Minister Narendra Modi on Wednesday wooed global investors to Gujarat and India at the annual Vibrant Gujarat Global Summit that kicked off on Wednesday. Mr Modi said the world looks at India as a powerhouse for talented youth, a technology hub for finding solutions and a democracy that delivers, and the country is on its way to becoming the third largest economy in a few years. A slew of announcements also followed at the summit. Steel major ArcelorMittal founder Lakshmi Mittal said that they would build the world's single biggest steel manufacturing factory at Hazira in Gujarat by 
The factory will have a capacity of 24 million tons of steel per annum, he said, speaking at that 10th vibrant Gujarat Global Summit in Gandhinagar in Gujarat. Now, as is often the case in investment summits, many business houses club ongoing and past announcements and then add some. ArcelorMittal being a good example, though other companies appear to have announced fresh investments and I'll come to that in a moment. Now, Arcelor has roughly got a 7 million ton steelmaking capacity apart from power and a captive port, all of which it acquired from SR Steel via a bankruptcy proceeding in 2019. In September 2022, ArcelorMittal made a presentation to visiting investors where it said that debottlenecking and ongoing investments would take up capacity to 8.6 million tons by the end of 2024, that's the end of this year. It then said that it was targeting about 15 million tons of crude steel capacity by the first quarter of 2026, which is two years from now, and then revealed the option of increasing capacity further to 20 million tons. Now, this, just to remind you, was in September 22. So now, back to Wednesday, Mittal said that ArcelorMittal had signed MOUs with the Gujarat government for phase two of the Hazira plant in the summit. He also said the Prime Minister had done a Bhumi Puja, or an inauguration for the first phase of the plant in 2021 and construction is going on as per schedule for commissioning in 2026. So it would appear to me that there is an extra 4 million tons added to the 20 million tons already listed as an option in the 2022 presentation to investors. Now, this is of course a rough scope from what I could see and is not meant to suggest that companies are not investing as they promise, but it's just that it can be tough to sync fresh announcements with investment summit. Others seem to have announced fresh investment intentions as well. Tata Sun's chairman N. Chandrasekharan said negotiations for a semiconductor fab in Dolera in Gujarat are in the final stages. He said that he was anticipating the project's initiation this year and underlined the Tata's commitment to venture into cutting-edge technology and manufacturing, positioning Tata Sun's at the forefront of technological innovation. Speaking on Gujarat, Chandrasekharan said, I guess for the benefit of those who came in late, that the Tata Group in Gujarat holds a distinctive significance dating back to 1939 when Tata Chemicals started its presence. He also highlighted the pivotal role of Sanand near Ahmedabad in Tata's electric vehicle technology endeavours, emphasising that it has evolved into a central hub for its EV initiatives. He also revealed plans to commence the construction of a massive 20 gigawatt battery storage factory in Gujarat in the next few months, according to the business standard. Auto giant Maruti Suzuki, meanwhile, said it would invest about 35,000 crore rupees to set up its second manufacturing facility in Gujarat, Suzuki Motor Corporation President Toshihiro Suzuki said at the summit. He said the plant would have an installed production capacity of about a million units per annum. As a result, the annual production capacity in Gujarat would be 2 million units, that's 1 million at Suzuki Motor Gujarat and another million at the second new plant that was announced on Wednesday. Currently, Suzuki has a capacity of about 2.2 million cars per annum across its two manufacturing plants in Haryana and the one I just spoke of in Gujarat. Both the Adanis and Ambanis, who of course have most of their manufacturing investments and routes in Gujarat for several decades, also announced large investments. Gautam Adani on Wednesday announced a 2 trillion or 200,000 crore investment in Gujarat over the next five years, largely in setting up the world's largest clean energy project that would be visible even from space. He said the group is building three gigafactories for making solar modules, wind turbines, and hydrogen electrolyzers. 
It's also building the world's largest green energy park, covering 725 square kilometers, which will produce 30 gigawatts of electricity from solar energy, as well as set up an integrated renewable energy manufacturing ecosystem for solar and wind. Now, most of these, once again, are ongoing projects. Reliance is Mukesh Ambani, in a speech which was quite heavily loaded with praise for the Prime Minister, announced that they had begun building the Dhirubhai Ambani Green Energy Giga Complex, over 5,000 acres in Jamnagar, which also houses their refinery, which would be ready to commission this in the second half of 2024 itself. Interestingly, Reliance Industries stock hit an all-time high of 2,658 on the Bombay Stock Exchange after Goldman Sachs reiterated its buy rating on the stock while downgrading its rating on other oil stocks. Meanwhile, just as expected, and despite some frenzied and speculative reporting otherwise, Elon Musk has not turned up for the vibrant Gujarat summit or, for that matter, announced a Tesla investment and manufacturing plant. A senior government official on Wednesday told the Economic Times that the Tesla founder was not coming for the ongoing Gujarat Global Summit. Of course, Gujarat nor India are giving up on Elon. The managing director of Gujarat Industrial Development Corporation told the Economic Times that Tesla was, of course, welcome to invest in Gujarat and the state was keen to get Tesla if it came to India. The managing director also pointed out that Gujarat was already home to a slew of electric vehicle manufacturers, but that's something we already knew. He said that you will appreciate that it is the prerogative of any particular company on where to invest and what to invest. So far as Tesla is concerned, the government of Gujarat will be more than happy to facilitate them in case they decide to come to the state. IT jobs slow down dramatically in the United States. The information technology sector in the United States grew by only 700 jobs over 2023, a drastic slowdown from the 267,000 jobs added in 2022, even as artificial intelligence and chat GPT spawned huge interest from businesses, the Wall Street Journal reported on Wednesday. Of course, the COVID era saw massive hiring by most technology companies who subsequently started backpedaling and downsizing as they realized that life was actually not going to be that different from how it was before COVID. Cybersecurity, AI and data science were amongst the segments responsible for IT job creation in 2022 and 23, the Wall Street Journal quoted experts saying, while roles managing corporate applications like payroll and human resource systems were being replaced by cloud software. Now, what does this mean for Indian IT companies and the Indian IT industry who are also more specifically expected to announce muted to weaker third quarter results? And more importantly, what does this mean for the larger universe of jobs and business prospects for Indian IT? I reached out to Siddharth or Sidpai, a commentator on IT industry trends, columnist and co-founder of Siana Capital, a venture capital firm focused on deep tech. And I began by asking him whether he was seeing correlations between international and domestic markets and how, in his mind, Indian companies were gearing up. Globally, I think there was an increase of the number of jobs that are available from an IT perspective because of the pandemic. Everybody thought that the future was going to be IT-driven, it was going to be virtual, it was going to be, you know, work from home, those sorts of things. So it caused a significant amount of uptick in tech interest across the globe, right? Not just in India, where you had big tech players like Meta, Google, and others hiring up quite a bit, as well as, of course, in our own backyard with the IT services industry also hiring tremendously. Not just hiring tremendously, 
poaching from one another quite a bit at the unheard of premier you know, compared to what they've done before and the willingness to buy out notice periods and so forth. I think there was a lot of euphoria at that point in time, which was overdone. So the first reaction basically is that this is coming back to earth and you know some of the froth has gone away and the reality is, is set back in. So as a result, we're seeing some of a, something of a decline. I believe that the industry overhired actually. And what we're seeing is a correction back to what the natural level of hiring should be. Unfortunately, the people who are suffering as a result of that are some of the newer people getting into the industry. So that's the overall view from a global standpoint. I think you also were interested a little bit from an IT services uh, viewpoint, an India viewpoint. So I think in India, we have not just that problem from a global perspective, which I already pointed out, but we have a different problem. The problem that we have is that we have overcorrected significantly in terms of the numbers of engineers that are available in India for hire. Everybody seems to think that the route to a safe job, as well as you know, the, probably a cushy posting abroad and so forth, is to get into a software company, regardless of what, whether it's IT services or you know, a global development center or a, directly a tech place, because that sort of ensures a long-term career. So I'll give you some figures which will make you think. 20 years ago, we used to pay a starting engineer coming in into, into the industry somewhere in the region of about 3 lakhs of rupees. Okay, maybe slightly less, but somewhere in that region. 20 years on, we are still paying more or less the same amount. For instance, there was some news recently with one IT services major who had originally made a 6.5 lakh rupee offer per year, but they dialed it back down to the 3.5 lakh rupees and said, you know, you should be lucky to have a job. I think that sort of puts it in, <laughs> in quite in stark perspective. The fact is that we're still paying our engineers only as much as we did 20 years ago, despite inflation and despite everything else. There was a time 20 years ago when parents would proudly say that my son or daughter is making more than I did, more than I've done after a 30-year career, soon after their college. That is definitely not the case anymore. The reason is we only had about 120,000 engineers graduating in 2002. If you look at what we have now, it's one and a half million. So from 1.2 lakhs, we have grown to 15 lakhs. So the supply of engineers that we've got and people who can code and people who can be in the IT industry overall has not gone up you know, in consonance with what the demand is. It's, got, it's boomed. So we have so many people who are now more competing for the job and it's a demand and supply answer, which is why we've come to the situation where we're in, where companies can with impunity say, listen, I'm only going to pay you what I was paying 20 years ago. So in India, we have a variation on that theme, which is the problem of not only is there settling demand, which I talked about from a global perspective, we also have this oversupply of engineers and computer engineers who are available. And so therefore, it's a difficult situation. As you look ahead, Sid, how are you seeing the prospects for the industry? I mean, when I say prospects for the industry, one is on the demand side, which of course, the projections are that 2024 is not going to be so good, including in banking and finance, retail and so on in the Western markets. But also from the ability of Indian companies to do well and to deliver the kind of performances they've been delivering consistently for so many years. Basically, I think what's happened over the last year or so is with the move in Gen AI, as we've seen, most companies are taking a little bit of a pause because they don't completely understand how much impact this could have on their existing workforce. Now, my opinion of Gen, Gen AI is this, it's not necessarily panacea to all ills. 
But having said that, and it's just basically an autocomplete engine, if you ask me. But and I have reasons why I say that. I've worked in AI, you know, for very many years. With some of these first algorithms, more than thirty years ago, with with the offshoot of Carnegie Mellon University, Carnegie. But having said that, though, it's quite powerful in terms of what it can actually accomplish, and you don't necessarily need the same level of human effort anymore as a result. Now, it might not have everything perfect, but it does become a huge productivity uptick in terms of what it can bring to the bottom line. So if you can manage to get intelligent automation, which is what this is, taken care of, then that means that probably the number of people you have performing your processes or even for that matter writing code for you don't need to be as many as you have today. So there is a period of settling that's happening in addition to the euphoria coming down. There is also this Gen AI that's come up on the other side, which is now saying, okay, we need to figure out exactly where this thing is going to settle. So there's a wait and see sort of view with most of the customers of the traditional IT support funds. Having said that, though, I think there's one more issue, which is India-based service providers or India-heritage service providers, to use the right term, have not been as adroit as some of the other global players in changing themselves. So uh, one great example, I know it's a tired one, but nonetheless it's worth giving, is if you look at Accenture, they have a business unit called Accenture Song, which is essentially an agglomeration of some 40-plus acquisitions they've done over the last few years in marketing technology. So today, the world's largest creative marketing agency and Accenture is. And the revenue for that single business unit from Accenture is about $18 billion, which is larger than Infosys. And if you look at their ability to have actually moved their people into working with these new technologies, and by the way, you know that's where the cutting, the leading edge really is, is in bringing customers home, so therefore marketing is the most important. These guys have really transmuted themselves into a completely different entity than they used to be. And they're very, very flexible. I mean, they've done this before. They went from 250 people in India about 20, 22 years ago to having many more people in India than they have in the U.S., which is a sea change for an organization like that. I question the capability of our Indian service providers, Indian heritage service providers, to pull off similar feats. Accenture has done it three or four times. First, they moved to an outsourcing company, then became an offshoring company. Now has become a marketing company. I mean, this kind of agility, we simply don't have among Indian heritage providers. So I think they're going to see a little bit more carnage, to be honest. Get the worst side of what's coming out. Because today's IT spender is not the traditional CIO, which is where the Indian firms focus. It is the marketing manager. It is the finance manager. It is the you know factory manager. It's a bunch of people who are actually heading up business lines who are making the technology decisions, not some back office CIO. If we have this view that we're going to be the back office to the world, and make our money simply by being better value for money, that's not going to be enough. I mean, you gave the Accenture example and the transition that it's made to, in this case, being more of a creative and a marketing company. That's on one side. But equally on the other side, the new customer within the same organization who is no longer the CIO. And if that indeed is the case, how would you say broadly within Indian companies, who's doing better than the others? I don't know if you can take names, but I mean... I. I'm sure they're all adapting, but I think the question, for example, the street would want to know is who's adapting better or faster? I mean, that's a fair question to ask. And thank you for giving me that doubt because I don't want to name uh, particular service providers. But uh, nonetheless, I'll give you an indication. 
I think if you look at the service providers that are less family-owned, you will tend to see that they have had more agility in the marketplace or less founder-driven. I won't even say family-owned. I would say founder-driven. So if you stack up, just have to look at the stock performance of widely dispersed IT services holdings and how they've degenerated. So some of them have degenerated about 10% to tightly controlled, family controlled or remote controlled entities, which have degenerated by 40%. So there's your answer. On the flip side of that, you know, the ability for a promoter-driven organization to be very decisive in how they move is definitely more so than in a than in a widely dispersed organization or ownership-dispersed organization. But that said, you know, the promoter should be risk-seeking at this point. It's very difficult for, you know, 15, $18 billion companies to be as risk-seeking as they were when they were younger and smaller companies, which is, which is what they did and what contributed to their success. So I think a good predictor is to take a look at what the amount of proprietor, founder ownership still is, or driven, founder-driven firms are, and bet against them. Sid, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Govind, for having me. I appreciate the time. Boeing acknowledges a mistake. Boeing's CEO, David Callon, said the company needs to acknowledge its mistake arising out of a door plug failure that has resulted in roughly 170 of its aircraft being grounded and, of course, generating fresh waves of anxiety about flying world over. From what I could see, the move to acknowledge Boeing's role in the mishap has been welcomed as a positive step and a constructive and responsible response by many, including from a communications point of view. In his first remarks since the accident, Cologne indicated a misstep by the aircraft maker played a role. He said on Tuesday that we're going to approach this, number one, by acknowledging our mistake. And he said this in an address to employees just days after that incident on an Alaska Airlines flight, according to the Wall Street Journal. He then said that we are going to approach it with 100% and complete transparency every step of the way and also work with the National Transportation Safety Board, who is investigating the accident itself, to find out what the cause is. Regulators have grounded about 170 Boeing 737 MAX 9 planes since that door plug detached from a MAX 9 jet at about 16,000 feet, leaving the plane with a gaping hole, and it subsequently, of course, returned safely to ground. Air traffic picks up again. It's difficult to say what news of that Boeing 737 MAX 9 mishap will do to air travel, but at this point, more people are returning to catching flights as and when they can afford it, I guess, given how fares are going up or have gone up. And we're quite close to where we left off in 2019. The International Air Transport Association, or IATA, released data for November 2023's air travel performance, indicating that air travel demand has now topped 99% of 2019 peak levels. Now, this is predominantly driven by domestic traffic growth or traffic within countries rather than between them. International traffic rose 26% versus November 2022, while domestic traffic rose 35% compared to the same period, that's November 2022. China has seen perhaps the highest growth numbers also because shutdowns in that country were far more severe. IATA's Director General, Willie Walsh, said that economic headwinds are not deterring people from taking to the skies. International travels remains about 5.5% below pre-pandemic levels, but that gap, he said, is rapidly closing. And domestic markets have been above their pre-pandemic levels continuously since April. That's it for me for today. See you tomorrow. 
That was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter for our exclusive stories, one in-depth feature a day on www.thecore.in. Do also track us on LinkedIn, where we usually post synopses or extracts of our top stories and interviews. We would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant, including, of course, India's vibrant manufacturing sector. So write to us at feedback at the core dot in. And thank you once again for listening. <laughs>